Hi guys, host Tom Melville here. Just before we get started, this is actually episode four of our Forgotten River series. I'd recommend going back and giving episodes one, two, and three a listen first. Yeah, no, so it's pretty cool growing up, you know, always walking along the river, riding a motorbike along the river. We used to go swimming put the jet ski in and obviously as we got older the sort of rivers started to deteriorate quite a lot to the point where you know we haven't had the river for the last two years flowingly like it should which is pretty devastating really for everyone. Will Ashby is a tall western division lad of 25. Trevelyan station is about 80 k's north of Wilcannia and he's the sixth generation of his family who has lived here. He loves living out here riding motorcycles is a favorite pastime. When we meet him, he's in the workshop, readying his current rig for sale. Like when it started to go dry and it stopped running, the pools would start to go green and you know, then you start showering in it and every night you know, you're noticing it's getting worse and to the point you get in the shower and you feel like you want to throw up because it's just disgusting. So that's sort of an eye-opening moment where you go, OK, well, it's never been like this before. Why has it sort of been like this and becoming more regular? He's recalling when the Darling River, which runs through their property for about 65 k's, stopped flowing pretty well for two years straight and didn't really get going properly again until February this year. His younger brother Jack, also a tall Western Division man with shaggy blonde hair, says showering lost all appeal. Like you feel like you're getting more dirty when you have a shower than when you got in because you just stink. I've had a shower under that tap over there, that's a rainwater tap. I laid under that in a chair once. Because I couldn't stand the smell of the shower, it was just horrible. It's Will's dream to take over Trevelyan from his parents, Bill and Chrissy Ashby. He wants to raise a family here, have them grow up on the river like he did. But the drought and the fact that the river seems to be going dry more regularly and for longer make that dream seem a lot more difficult to realise. Definitely makes it harder to try and live out here. You know, it's your main sort of water source for everything that you do, whether it's you know for your livestock for growing the lawn here for, you know, just general living purposes that everyone should be allowed to have, but we're sort of struggling at the moment with how bad the river's gotten and how regularly it's going dry to the point where, you know, we're getting blue-green algae here, which is another massive issue of how bad the water actually is. It does make you wonder how the future's going to be, what the future holds for here. I'm Tom Melville, and this is Forgotten River, a Voice of Real Australia series on an outback tragedy, the death of the Darling River. In episode one, we went to Menindee, where a couple of years ago, millions of fish died off in one of Australia's biggest ever man-made ecological catastrophes. Then we journeyed to Pooncarry, through blood-red soil and the big sky country, to where for two years the mighty Darling ran dry. And in the last episode, we visited Wilcannia, once a queen among Darling River towns, which boasted 13 pubs, 3,000 people, and one of the busiest ports in the whole country. Now this mostly Aboriginal enclave of 700 worries if the river, which they believe has been stolen from them, and which has kept them alive for millennia, might cease to flow for good. And now, in the fourth and final episode of Forgotten River, we reach the top end of the Darling quite literally at the back of Burke, next door to the cotton farmers blamed for siphoning off unsustainable levels of water into massive private dams. Trevelyan was bought by my grandfather in about 1939 
and then my father took over and then we took over from my dad in December 2017. So where all my boys are, sixth generation, are living along the Darling River because their great-great-great-grandfather came out on one of the paddle steamers as a captain many years ago and he ended up... That's Chrissy Ashby, Will and Jack's mum. She's lived on Trevallian her whole life and took over from her dad a few years ago. Writer John Hanscom and I are sitting in the kitchen with her and husband Bill Ashby. The window over the kitchen sink looks out over a vast floodplain and I note a good covering of pasture at the moment. Just 18 months ago, it would not have looked like this. I don't think we could have got any more critical. Uh, We were down to one uh, pond, which was just rank water that was that we were pumping from that was our only source of water to pump from all of our stock and domestic were on that water our troughs were filthy they this just stench and the house was on that water as well so you have a shower and learn to breathe through your mouth pretty quickly because if you decided to have a shower and breathe through your nose you wouldn't have even got in the shower we then put the house onto rainwater, but that was depleted because we didn't have The any three rain years from January 2017 to December 2019 were the driest on record for the whole of the Murray-Darling Basin. Then the council supported us for a very short time with trucking water to fill our rainwater tank. They had to truck that from Broken Hill because the water in Wilcannia wasn't a quality enough to even bring out to our property for drinking. That drought looms large over conversations you have with everyone up and down the system. People were destocking, dropping bores, racking up debts. The Bureau of Meteorology said the severity of the drought was a situation with no clear historical precedent. Bill tells me all of the water used on Trevallion came from the Darling. Now they got to the stage where we hardly had enough water to flush the toilet. And look, that's how bad it was. We were this far from having no water. Or, you know, buy more pipe to go down to another stinking hole two or three, four days down the river and pumping it back. It's just ridiculous. Did it ever get to the point where you thought, we're going to have to leave this place, lock the door and walk off? <coughs> no, no, never do that. Never do that. that never, never, never be part of what we would ever think about doing. I think if you ever thought like that, you probably shouldn't be here, really. Yeah. Yeah, we love it. Mm. We'll, whatever we have to do. Well, we've probably proven that, really. We've probably... What is it? If your glass half empty or half full, you just be grateful for the glass, is what I say. That's a pretty common attitude out this way. The Ashbys can't conceive of a world that doesn't have them farming Trevallion, their 71,000-acre sheep station. But it is getting harder. Oh, when I was little, I'd, the river would get low, but it, I don't ever remember it going dry. And we used to water ski in it all the time as little kids behind a tinny, and then we bought an iron older style ski boat we spent every day down there skiing but my kids here they've had very limited opportunity of doing that because the water hasn't been there and when it has been there it's been like either dry or a foot deep so yeah no definitely massive changes particularly in the last probably 10 to 15 20 years does that i guess hurt it's heartbreaking it's devastating If someone had told me that 20 years ago it was going to look like this, you would never have believed them. It's unbelievable. And I think if you um, asked any experts about if it was possible for this to have happened to the river system, I don't think they would have ever been able to tell you that it was ever going to look like this. 
Chrissy's husband Bill nods along, agreeing that the dry periods have grown. It's a lot of water, and you know I've got a lot of floodplain country here on Trevelyan. It's probably uh, in a big flood here, probably half of this place would go underwater. So I think my floodplain is just as important as someone else's floodplain upriver, and this needs to get wet every now and again. It's what it does. It's what it always has done. And it used to be about one in every four or five years you'd get a flood out under the floodplains, but now it's more like one in ten. So it's, they can take a lot of water that doesn't come down the river, for sure. I think it's over-instruction. Too many people taking too much water. And they, they've allowed this to happen through licences and things like that, and it's, it's just over-allocation, I think. And this is going to be so hard to rein back in. How can you take water off someone? In a really wet year, like in 2010, the Darling bursts its banks and the river can spread to over 60 kilometres wide. It's been a while since a really good year. I think personally you just keep going because that's what you've got to do. It's more the frustration of the voice being heard that if we were living in third world conditions and that's never been accounted for out here, that's the frustrating part. How do we change that? Because... It's not okay, and if our city folk had to even live one day in that, the whole country would be in uproar. But because we're a minority voice out here, we're minority people, it's just really hard to be heard. But we don't give up and we keep fighting and we have little small wins, but we've had some good wins and we've just got to keep fighting. The Ashbys don't blame the drought, although it didn't help. I just can't believe the greed of some people... They just need more and more and more and more. And, and if they let them just take more and more, it's a little like a kid going into a candy shop, isn't it? You know, they go in there and they pinch one candy, one trip. Next time they go there, they go there once pretty easy to get one last time, I'll grab two this time. This is what's been going on. It's great. It's human nature. I was going to ask, do you blame them? No one's been jumping on to say, stop, we can't be doing this. This is illegal. So it's just been going on and on and on and on like this. And how do you, how do you rein that back in? Bill's talking about irrigators upstream. You irrigate your property and get a good crop, cotton mostly. It's the most profitable crop in the Northern Basin. 80% of irrigation up there goes to it. Cotton is a byword for the trials of the Lower Darling. The dryland farmers further south look at the vast monocultures of the Northern Basin and trace a straight line from overallocation to the dried up riverbed. It's not fair to blame cotton, though, and Chrissy certainly doesn't. I mean, you can, I don't really mind what anyone grows. I mean, obviously a lot of them grow cotton because it's a strong commodity and they can make a lot of money out of it, so it's not necessarily cotton, it's just irrigation and the floodplain harvesting that's killing us and killing the whole river. If we don't do something, that down the track you're going to look at the Murray River being in the same position as the Darling, and that's going to be a massive worldwide Australia challenge. I really hope it doesn't get to that, but if it does, then that's when the whole of Australia will probably be waking up when we start losing that system as well. Cotton needs a lot of water, but it's not uniquely thirsty among crops. Australia is also far and away the most efficient producer of cotton in terms of water used per bale in the world. It's not like almonds or citrus fruit. You don't have to water permanent plantings year-round. You can sow more or less depending on the availability of water. Cotton farmers feel like they're unfairly blamed for the woes of the darling, that they're operating in good faith within a system that has allowed them to flourish. 
We tried to interview cotton farmers but didn't have any luck. One Northern Basin cotton farmer told us he didn't want to engage and that cotton farmers were sick of being demonised. He said they suffered just as much as everyone else during the drought. Wish I could show you a photo. Um, So what it looks like. (laughs) But no one I've met along the Darling blames cotton. They blame greed, overallocation and floodplain harvesting. So basically what happens in a flood is um, the river breaks its banks, water goes out across the floodplain, flows just, just out and across. And on these farms, they've got these storages, but they also have channels and so on. So the channels and some of the levees will sort of catch that water as it's moving out across the landscape and it goes into channels to let that flood water as it's spreading out across the landscape flow into their, you know, some of it flow into their, their storages. It's as simple as that. Claire Miller is head of the New South Wales Irrigators Council, the peak body representing irrigators in the state. Her description of floodplain harvesting is succinct. Some of the water in those big rivers that Bill remembers, which are 60 k's wide at times, is siphoned off into private storage dams. The problem is that right now the practice is unregulated and unmeasured. No one really knows how much water is being taken, although the New South Wales government estimates a quarter of all water used in the Northern Basin comes from floodplain harvesting. It's a very important economic generator in those northern valleys, no different to in the south. Irrigated agriculture is quite uh, services intensive, and so that means that there's a lot of industries that hang off the farms themselves. So while you've got workers on the farms, a lot of families live on the farms as workers, you've also got service industries that support it. So that's the people who do the transport, the people who do fertilisers and pesticides and and all those sorts of things as well and assist with harvest. So it's absolutely an economic backbone of those communities. Being head of the New South Wales Irrigators Council, Claire is, as a rule, supportive of irrigation. And she says she wants floodplain harvesting to be regulated and measured to make sure it's sustainable. So, yes, there has been a growth in the capacity of storage in the northern valleys. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And that has increased their capacity to take more water. That's the whole point of these uh, regulations that are coming through is because the amount of water that's actually taken needs to be reduced back to where it was um, with the cap levels that was estimated in 1994. She says this kind of take could be reduced by two thirds in some areas. So the whole point of licensing and regulating and metering this form of water take is to basically pull it back so that it's under the Basin Plan's sustainable limits because there's a recognition that there has been a growth in use and over the long term that is not sustainable, particularly with climate change. Kalara Station is a titan among Back of Burke properties. It used to be a million acres, but it's been parceled up and now Justin McClure, a fifth-generation Western Division man, controls about a quarter of that. When I meet Justin, he's wheeling his single-seater aeroplane into the hangar. He's been up trying to locate a mob of sheep due to be mustered. It's a sunny, windless morning, perfect flying conditions. So I suspect the bumpiest part of the journey might be landing on a strip of earth which looks more paddock than runway. Either way, he's found the sheep, so he takes us on a drive through his property to the shearing sheds where he, a mate, and his dog expertly wrangle a few hundred head into the pens. Hey, hey, hey! Get up, Get up. 
After that farming is out of the way, we sit down to talk about the question which has dominated his life, water. Are you optimistic you're going to see those sorts of rivers soon? Ah. Well, if if, if there's a good forecast um, and the catchment is saturated, the dams are full, the private dams are full, probability of getting a flood is combined with a positive forecast has got to be high, hasn't it? There's a lot to there's a lot of hoops to jump through to get through to that down to here, a big river down here then. Yeah, definitely. And um, they're all lined up. That's exciting. Ah, oh, massive, massive. Muddy money in mud. Ain't much muddy in dirt and dust. Justin has been a player in the water debate for decades. He's always been a keen advocate for sustainable farming practices. We just keep on keeping on and we like to do things as well as we can because that closely linked to sustainable production and sustainable production is what keeps us here. Yeah, If we're bad at what we do, then we degrade the very environment that, that suckers us. So um, the whole business of grazing Western Division country has been... Interesting and an experiment, I guess. You know, white man did it very, very badly for pretty 150 years. And I mean, they did it really, really badly. They introduced the rabbit, they overgrazed it with cloven hoofed animals, and it's only now that we're actually learning how we manage this country. In my lifetime, I've seen a, uh, what's the word? It's a resurrection of native plants and shrubs that has regravated this country and, and made it more sustainable. And global demand for food is huge and we've got the land to do it. Low rainfall, low stocking densities, clean and green. We've actually got everything we need. But the one key element we really, really need is water. And without water, we will perish. For all the complexity and the nuance in the endless pages of reports and studies, all the jargon and impenetrable language, the issue to Justin is actually pretty simple. Yeah, there's a saying that originates in Queensland that what water I can't harness is a waste. So it's basically, very simply, human greed. I look after myself and my own communities and bugger than a guy next door. It's a bit like water theft. And it's a bit like some stuff that to the national access regulators putting about at the moment. An irrigator taking water illegally is uh, metaphorically stealing from not only another irrigator, but another human downstream. It doesn't rain much in his area. So when there's no water in the river running through Kalara Station, he looks north. 95% of our water comes from upstream. And this is really critical because... No matter how many changes we make to our plan, we can only affect the outcome very, very smallly. It's a 95% of the water that comes into our area that we have no influence over is where the change needs to happen. Water is difficult, but governments of all colours and persuasions are trying to do the right thing to ensure we have consistency of measurement and floodplain harvesting is measuring the water so that we manage it in the best way possible and ensure that it is fair and it is equitable. But the other important fact is 
most of the water that falls in the northern basin stays in the northern basin within the wetlands of the Guaida and of the Macquarie marshes. There is a view that's been developed that all the water would be going into the Barker and it's not the natural flow of events. The more we better manage the water in the north, the more that we improve the environment, the wetlands, the marshes, the native habitat, the native fishes. That is what we need to be working on and we need to be working from an honest set of truths and facts. Melinda Pavey is the New South Wales Water Minister and she's on the forefront of the push to normalise and regulate floodplain harvesting. A recent attempt to regulate the practice was blocked in the State Legislative Council. She explains why she's so keen to see the regulations passed. We want to manage it so that we can measure it. Measuring, being able to measure water is really, really important for the environment and for communities. And there has been a lot of misinformation going around that this is that they've conflated the issue of measuring um, floodplain harvesting with wanting to abolish it. Now, there is a view in the South that if you abolish floodplain harvesting, that you will solve all the problems of the world. That is not the case. The issue is we need to be able to measure what is being managed so we can show and that we are under cap and where we are potentially are exceeding that cap, we stop that extraction. Because the reality is we have a cap. If it's not taken from the storages built with floodplain harvesting, it will be taken by our creeks and our river systems. So this is a way to take pressure off those creeks and river systems while we keep towns in water and industries alive. Minister Pavey says that getting rid of floodplain harvesting isn't a silver bullet, that it won't make the river run during drought. There's a lot of conjecture, Tom. There's a lot of facts. Are you aware that on average only 1% of the water, uh, there would be only about a 1% increase in the water going into the Murray from the northern basin if we were to remove all floodplain harvesting storages? But if you listen to the people that you've been talking to, they believe that getting rid of floodplain harvesting would solve everyone's problems. It wouldn't, just like it didn't pre the 1950s when the Barker and the Darling ran dry many more times than what it has done since we've had storages constructed. Now, we are operating within the cap. There is a cap that has been put on to ensure that towns and cities like Adelaide didn't run out of water during the last drought, and it didn't. So some aspects of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan are working. We are being more forthright. We are being more evidence-based on the management of water. Claire Miller agrees and doesn't accept that it was Northern Irrigators, her members, who were responsible for the river running dry over the last few years. The whole system was in drought, she says, and there just wasn't any water anywhere. How could that be the fault of irrigators? I think when you get severe droughts and rivers dry up, it's really, really confronting. Of course it is. It's extremely distressing. And, you know, something that's not actually terribly well known is the Namoi River dried up as well in the north. So it wasn't just the Barwon Darling and the Border Rivers was looking pretty sick and the Guada was looking pretty sick too. So those rivers, it was a drought, worst drought on record, pretty savage. But as I say, once it starts to rain, there's a very clear hierarchy of who gets water first. And as I said, it, it starts with towns and very soon, quickly after the towns, it's what they say the environment. Uh, but what they really mean is the rivers and then irrigation is the last cab off the rank when it comes to being allocated water and it's the first one to have the tap turned off when there isn't much water, and that is pretty much true right across the basin. During the drought, Will Kenya was getting water donated by members of the public. The river went dry for hundreds of kilometres and millions of fish died. 
But cotton had a decent year in 2018. It wasn't too far off its 2012 peak in terms of bales produced. The view from downstream is that yes, droughts are bad, but that they're not felt equally. I put this to the water minister. Basically what I'm saying is that these on-farm storages have meant that in 2017-18, there was a big cotton crop. 2018-19, there was a decent cotton crop. At the same time, downstream in World Kenya, there were no flow. They were getting water donated. And further down, they were destocking. It just seems that... But no, Tom, sorry, you, miss, gonna... you miss a crucial point. Every dam, every storage was filled to the gunnels in 2016. But by the next year, it didn't rain again. It didn't rain for three years. If those storages weren't there, it wouldn't have been there for the darling either. It would have flowed away. It didn't rain for three years. It, if it didn't rain, the rain had happened in 2016. By 2017, there was no water left. It didn't rain again. I, I don't understand your point. I just don't see how that these on-farm storages, I mean, take floodplain harvesting out of the equation. I don't see how... Or any dam. I just don't see how diverting this water can't have an effect downstream. It just doesn't make sense to me. But, and this is the problem, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people because it is complicated. If it hasn't rained in 12 months, that water's gone. There wasn't rain for three years. The water, that those dams that you're talking about, any dam, was full. Everything was full in 2016. We'd had floods. We'd had rain. It was wonderful. And then it didn't rain again. But that wasn't the reason the Darling ran out of water. It ran out of water because it hadn't rained. And the water that had fallen in 2016 had left. It had gone down the system. There are laws in place which regulate the amount of water that can be diverted for agriculture and other purposes, a cap which was set more than 25 years ago. Long term, New South Wales has struggled to get down to those limits. Justin McClure doesn't know how regulating floodplain harvesting, measuring it and including it in the cap is going to make that easier. Murray-Darling Basin Authority have established a cap and this cap is a cap on extractions of water from the system. So floodplain harvesting is part of that water source. My understanding is that uh, floodplain harvesting has to be within that cap. So for the life of me, I can't see how they can potentially issue new floodplain harvesting licences, and I mean physically uh, parcels of water, and still remain within that cap. It's impossible because there is only one water source. There's only one amount of water. Are you concerned that the losers, or I guess the, the price that the powers that be are willing to pay to keep floodplain harvesting within CAP, are going to be people such as yourself and your neighbours downstream? That's the implication of their actions. I guess the key here is if the number is within CAP, I don't think we will be a net loser. I think the losers will be at the top end of the system. If the number is changed or if the number is bastardised by political pressure, then we will be a loser. That the river ran dry is one of the most challenging issues for the region. Farmers and communities staring out at a bone-dry riverbed presents one of the starkest and most confronting images in the entire Murray-Darling Basin. But Minister Pavey is confident that the rules in place to protect the environment are sound. I think Australia 
has some of the best environmental regulations and rules to operate under. And I would trust our country with the transparency of operations, with the processes we have to grow rice and cotton. Um, And I'm more confident that there is a better respect of environmental values here than, say, other developing nations like China and India, who are also very big players in the international market. I don't see how you can say that we've got the best some of the best environmental regulation in the world when we've got a situation where hundreds of kilometres of river are dry, which would probably happen, but historically never for 27 months as it was down in Pukkari, and millions of dead fish and mussels. That's just not, that's not normal. That's new. These are new issues it, that are coming up. It's, it's not new. These are issues that have been there and you only need to look at the geographical records, look at the history books, listen to the stories um, of the Indigenous nations to our first explorers. There is no solution to keep that river system running 100% of the time. That's kind of separate to the point I was making, which is I think at Wilcannia there were 307 consecutive days of no flow in the last period of no flow, then there was a bit of flow. But historically there have been periods of no or very low flow and they've lasted a few weeks or a couple of months. I mean, these big old iconic species like cod and mussels, they require connectivity most of the time to survive. If this was normal where we've got two years of no water at all pretty well or blue-green algae blooms for hundreds of kilometres, they would have gone extinct you know, well into the past. The history books records blue-green algae before we before white man arrived. Um, so it's an easy easy point to make, but uh, drought and the lack of flow in that river has been an historical fact and what we are doing is ensuring that we respect the ability to create as much flow as possible, which is why we're investing in Morcania in a $30 million-plus weir which will increase the capacity and keep water at that community to increase the possibility of connectivity, increasing the storage from about 1.4 gigalitres to 5 gigalitres so that that town and that community has water and then we can use those weirs to be able to manage water flow when it isn't raining. Now, the issue that we have, we, we are a nation of plenty and a nation of very little and so the plan and the way we have developed our infrastructure as a state has been around capturing that water when it's plenty to keep it running when there is times of little. The Darling has ceased to flow in the past. The first half of the 20th century saw a relatively dry period and several protracted droughts where the river just didn't run. But the consensus is that upstream irrigation made the most recent drought longer and more severe in the Lower Darling. As climate change is all but guaranteed to reduce inflows even further, the future of the Lower Darling and the entire system is bleak. Back at Trevelyan Station, Jack Ashby hops on his motorbike and shows us an unmistakable marker of his family's connection to this country. Great-grandparents, plaques there, and then the old bale squasher here. The family symmetry is on a rise looking over the floodplain, just a few hundred metres from the house. It could scarcely be in a more beautiful spot. The land slopes through the pasture and the scrub, gently downwards, across the wide plain to the river itself, the Darling, the Barker. 
this is the first ancestor on Trevallion? Yes, I think it would be. Bye for James Lawrence here. It sort of makes you want to keep the flame alive, I guess. Yeah, ways. no, you know, it's a pretty good reason to stay because it's been in the family for so long, so it'd be great to keep it in the family. Bit of pressure. Yeah, a little bit, but sure we can handle it. <laughs> I imagine the Nutji, the rainbow serpent, gliding across the landscape, scoring the river channel, connecting rivers, lakes, wetlands and billabongs from Queensland to South Australia. I can sense the scale of the place, the size of the river, the age of the only trees in sight, how, how old are you? 21. So you... and the weight of history that must sit uneasily on this young man's shoulders. I've seen that hole over the other side of that fence there. Yeah. I've seen pretty well from there back to the river or underwater, all the way up to there, and it's got about 100 metres from that gate down there, the water did. That must make life pretty inconvenient for a little while. Yeah, no, it definitely did. But at the same time, it was so much fun when we were kids. It was just like you had your own lake out the front of your window and you could just do it, go there whenever you wanted. We used to ski up across the front, front of the house, pretty much. Um, that was awesome. Loved it. But I don't think it'll be a long time till we see that happen again, I reckon. So very fortunate to be able to witness it. The problem at the heart of the Lower Darling struggles is actually a simple one. Too much water is being extracted, not enough is making it downstream to recharge the aquifers, the billabongs, the wetlands, the lakes. No matter where you go in the system, your neighbours upstream are thieves and your neighbours downstream are wasteful. Only here, on this bend in the river, do we treat water with the respect it deserves. When we left Trevallion Station and made our way to Kalara, Chrissy Ashby made sure we knew where we were heading, and that Justin McClure knew when we were meant to arrive. There's a thread which stitches the outback together, but somewhere along the way that thread has been cut. Upstream and downstream are further apart than the city and the bush. I said in the first episode of this series that the scientific consensus in 2007, when the Water Act was passed, was that too much water was being diverted for agriculture and other uses, and that the environment was in freefall. There has been some movement since then, but there's a growing sense that time is running out, that the ecological disasters we're witnessing are becoming the norm. The fish kills in Menindee focus the world's gaze onto the Lower Darling, but the world has moved on. Different catastrophes have forced us to look away. But the rules which resulted in hundreds of kilometres of dry riverbed and millions of dead fish are still in place, and while the world looks away, the next tragedy could be right around the bend. That was episode four of Forgotten River, a Voice of Real Australia miniseries. For more stories from the Darling, to see the gorgeous photos of the place, or watch the videos, head to your local ACM news site such as the Canberra Times. This series was reported by me, your host, Tom Melville, and writer John Hanscom, with pictures by Dion Georgiopoulos. Production, mixing, and sound design by Laura Corrigan. Our assistant producer is intern Ethan Hamilton. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. 
This podcast is recorded on Ngunnawal and Ngambri country in Canberra. Special thanks to Emma Horn, Rachel Thornett, Tom Woodcock, Fleur Connick, Nick Phillips, Janine Graham, Kim Chappell, Mark Merritt from The Vanishing River and Rob McBride from Talano Station. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and James Joyce. This is an ACM podcast.